Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats, like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate <laughs> is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Drops. We're doing more cleaning than ever before, but it's hard to find eco-friendly cleaning products that actually work. Check out Drops. With over 10,000 five-star reviews, they're the laundry and dishwasher detergent pods that everyone is talking about. You'll see in no time how great their products are. Drops products are derived from nature with plant and mineral-based formulas, and they're delivered to your door in low-waste cardboard packaging instead of plastic containers that end up in our oceans and landfills. Sign up for auto shipments of Drops laundry pods and dishwasher pods to save big. You can pause, skip, or cancel your shipments at any time. Use code FRIENDS for 25% off your first order. That's Drops with two Ps. Check out all their custom cleaning solutions for every need. Visit Drops.com, Drops with two Ps, enter FRIENDS to get 25% off your first order today. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. This week, we're talking to comedian and CNN host W. Kamau Bell. His show, The United Shades of America, has its season premiere on May 2nd. It's called Policing the Police, and there is never a moment when it won't be timely. Unfortunately, there's also never a time when we can talk about this stuff without getting into some upsetting and graphic material. So if you're not up for that right now, you might want to come back later. If you are going to stay, coming right up, W. Kamau Bell. And yet we never learn. Perhaps the only way they'll know is if we let this city burn. How do I explain to my three-year-old why I'm marching in these streets? How do I explain to my three-year-old? What his death has done to me? How do I explain to my three-year-old? Another black man was killed by police. Kamal, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. So first, I have to ask you what your reaction was to the verdict last week. Which one? That is a good question. <laughs> All kinds kidding. of verdicts have been made. <laughs> yeah, a lot of judgments have come down in the last yeah, week. Yeah, I'm Even making the legal judgments verdict. all the time. Yeah, but the legal verdict out of out of Minneapolis. The, the, yes, the legal time. verdict out of Minneapolis. Uh, I mean, with with all respect, I uh, a little bit like the the 
Washington General scoring a basket on the Globetrotters. We got one. (laughs) (laughs) We scored. We scored a point. We're still down a lot. But uh, I feel great for George Floyd's family that they seem to feel like they've gotten a measure of justice, which is important in these things because so many black folks get zero justice or less than that. They get oppression out of complaining about police murdering their family. Um, so, yeah, I'm glad for them. I think we just have to look at it as a very particular case in that area. But, you know, the fact that Dante Wright was also uh, murdered that week by a police officer in the area, you would think if there were any police in the country who were paying more attention to that, it'd be police in that area of the country. And yet time and time again, we see that every police officer, even if they're next to a police officer doing a bad thing, thinks it's that either they think it's OK or well, that's that guy. Or that that's that woman. It has nothing to do with me. There's so many names that every mm-hmm. now and again I get caught up in like, wait, who's so, so Micaiah, Micaiah Bryant. Um, the, the the discussions around that where you hear people literally saying on TV, like police officers saying it was a good shooting, which is a scary <laughs> phrase. And then people def- and then the other even other people who aren't police officers saying, well, what was that police officer supposed to do? You know, he showed up. She was about to stab somebody with a knife that he had to he had to shoot her and he had to he had to shoot her and he had to. And police officers, despite what we see in movies, are not taught to shoot in the leg to wound. They're taught to shoot center mass, which means to kill. And and yet I posted about it on Twitter and I had all these like, well, actually, I reposted a woman who I think had been a social worker who was like, do you know how many times I've had to disarm a kid in a foster home or a kid in a classroom who had knives and scissors and bricks. And I had no time to think about calling the police. I just had to get in there. And I had other teachers saying like, yeah, I've been stabbed by things just, but you just get in there and you do it. And there's no thought about killing that kid. So I think we have to really, again, it's about, we have to reimagine what it is to be, to have police working for us. Are they working for us? Are they working against us in the black community and the in the Latinx community? Often they're working against indigenous community are often working against us. And of course I ask you this question, not just because it's in the news, but because you have your season premiere upcoming episode, policing the police of United on United Shades of America. There's not a time it wouldn't be relevant. Mm-hmm. Clearly. Um, I am curious though, kind of what the context was when you were putting the show together. Well, yeah. So our last season was delayed by the pandemic. CNN held the season. So because of everything going on in the news, they were like, (laughs) they were afraid people were like, stop showing television and just show me the COVID numbers. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to see the COVID numbers going up. I don't want to actually see anything else. So they delayed the season and which ended up working out for the show because we had a show about white supremacy we were working on. And then we were able to incorporate a lot of the footage of the protests in the wake of George Floyd into that episode. But what that also said is like, basically the news was as it often does with the United States, giving us an assignment saying, you're going to need to talk about policing in the next season. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like we had to pitch it to CNN or they pitched it to us, or I had the idea. It was just like clear we needed to do it. And then uh, by the time we went out to film it, which was like late August, early September, I can't remember which one, but, you know, we were still, there was no vaccine on the horizon. There was, you know, COVID was still in full bloom. Many people were still, if they could, had the privilege to shelter at home. You know, I was telling my kids, I have to go film a TV show. And they're like, but we can't go to school and you have to go film your TV show. Your stupid TV show we don't even watch. (laughs) (laughs) They don't call it stupid, but they don't watch it that much. Uh, But, you know, so it's like 
it was just a super hectic time. And as I've said before, I'm a black man in my 40s who has asthma and high blood pressures. I'm a walking comorbidity at COVID. I feel like COVID was looking for me, you know, for me personally. It was a scary time to be out there trying to make television. And also not. It's still at that time where we're still sort of some of us are still, you know, steam cleaning our vegetables before we ate them, you know. So it was just a really scary time. So when we decided we wanted to do an episode about policing, we were also trying to figure out what's the safest way to do these episodes. And one of the ways was like, can we do it close to my house? If only there was so, some need to tell a story about policing in the Bay Area. Oh, wait, there's a lot. <laughs> if only of there was some signature event that had happened yeah. that was really pivotal in our conversation about policing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was the just like, event, just do, you, of, do you want to actually say why Oakland is, is the perfect place? Yeah, to I mean, I, it's certainly for me personally, and it's certainly for the a lot of people in Oakland became activists from the uh, murder of Oscar Grant. And for me personally, it was like, it is, it defines a big part of who I am having lived through that experience. And, and you know, just as a member of the Bay area as a whole, not as somebody who was there or knew Oscar Grant, but as somebody who was in the Bay area when that happened, because again, this was 2009. So it's pre black lives matter. It's pre Trayvon Martin. It's also pre Twitter dominating the news, like Twitter being the like the the main engine of the news. And so I remember feeling like, why aren't more people in the country talking about this? There's a weird thing we don't we didn't get into the episode. I wanted to get it in there, but like the same day that uh, that Johannes Mesley was uh, found, you know, guilty of the light things he was found guilty of, <laughs> it was the same day that LeBron James said, "I'm taking my talents to Miami." <laughs> so the, it was the same, at the same time, like literally I had two TVs in my house at the time and they were happening at the same time. And I was and at the time I remember being like, if only this guy knew about this thing over here, <laughs> Like I feel like. And it's weird to have seen over the course of years. Now LeBron speaks out about these things. And, but- and you know, he was young. This is not an anti LeBron shade, but it is about the fact that like that's where we were, that these issues weren't as in- intertwined as they are now. I want to ask you about what's changed for you, because you start this episode by admitting that the slogan abolish the police is something you had a kind of a skeptical reaction to at first. Right. Mm-hmm. And you end in a different place. Yeah. Am I? Am I? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I mean, I certainly. I mean, I'd say like when I first heard about it. So I first heard that phrase specifically defund the police. Right around the time we I moved back from New York, I'd been in New York for a couple of years working on my first TV show. We moved back and I met Kat Brooks and Turha and Turha Ak, who's they're a part of the anti-police terror project that we talk about in the episode. And I heard that from Kat Brooks and them. And I was like, you know, even as a black dude who was like who like grew up in the hip hop era and everything, and my mom was a militant and an activist, I was like, defund the police. Oh my stars, we can't speak so ill of the police. Because we have been trained to be afraid of the police on some level. We've been been trained to not mess with the police, even though there are employees. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I understand where people come from with that. Uh, but again, I'm talking about this was probably 2014 when I first heard of it. So I, I have some empathy for, for people who are having that sort of strong reaction. What I don't have empathy for is not Googling it <laughs> or, not, <laughs> or not talking to people who can talk you down from that ledge, which is what I had. I had I talked to Kat Brooks, who's in the episode, and she and had it explained to me very clearly. I was like, oh, OK. All right. I get it. What it means is that, for example, in Oakland, 
we yeah, I probably shouldn't like, have said abolish. Like I, I betrayed yeah. my own that, kind of like. Well, no, well, on for, this. we can talk about that too. There is, <laughs> you know, we talk about the episode. There's a the fund for many people. The fund is just on the way to abolish, and for some people, the fund is the for not for everybody, but the fund is the goal in some way. But for for many people, the fund is just a stop on the train to get to abolish. And even like people like Cat Brooks, I feel like is like a leading person in this field would tell you because people always there's two things people say, and I've done a lot of interviews around this right. this week. One thing is like. I just feel like they need to change the name. <laughs> and people say that like nobody's ever said that before. Like they, like they had a brilliant, you know what? I woke up this morning and I feel like. <laughs> it's just like, really? You think that the name is problematic? And then the other thing people say, well, then what does it look like? Yeah. Well, guess what? We don't know. Because we're know, currently caught in a system. Repeal and replace was good enough yeah. for Republicans and Obamacare. Yeah. They didn't really mm-hmm. have a specific plan. So I don't never know. came up with the plan. <laughs> never, even when they had the power to change the plan, didn't come up with the plan. They didn't. Yeah. So maybe so, we should just say repeal and replace. Like that yeah, would be. <laughs> but I think the funny thing is, you know, this it ain't just Republicans who are afraid to defund nope. the police. Nope. You know, I think it is your it is your well-meaning liberals who think, you know what? I uh, supported the Women's March. And I voted for Joe Biden and I've, you know, and I've done all those things. So I'm pretty lefty. You know what I mean? So, uh, so, I, you know, so I think that the idea being that like they think, so I think you haven't thought this through a uh, young man uh, that, you know, as if, it, and it's like, you know, look, I used to be you, but also I've done the work. And I, and the thing that I keep coming back to is like, look, when the first uh, ship landed on the, on the shores of this country, and the first African got off that ship. And when it was explained to them what they would be doing when they were here and they were not being paid and they were not giving good living conditions. And if they and for any reason, anybody wanted to, they could be beaten and or raped with no recourse. And they were like, politely, I would like to not do that. Can I go home? And then they were beaten and or raped. Ever since that moment, black people in this country have tried to figure out ways to explain to the white power structure, to the system of white supremacy that we would like to be treated as full citizens of this country in an equitable and just way. And we've had all sorts of different ways. We've written music about it. We've given speeches about it. We've marched about it. We've done, we've done graffiti about it. And every time we do those things, the white supremacist power structure says, if you could only do it, ask a different way. But when you as a white person think about the worst case scenario, if police suddenly went away, which I want to talk about how they're not going to suddenly go away. Yeah. Like, what is it you picture? Right. Yeah. Ask yourself what you picture Mm -hmm. and then interrogate that. Yes. Yes. Now let's talk about the police suddenly disappearing overnight, which is, of course, what would happen if you (laughs) or I were in power. Right. Because like Like with any sort of like a change in power structure, it happens overnight. (laughs) Like how like we got a black president and there was no more racism. It just happens overnight. (laughs) Just wake up and it's. uh, yeah. So when we when you try to talk to people maybe who who are not counseling you on how you should talk about it and maybe you're genuinely curious like what is the way you explain like what it might look like if we listen to the people who say things like defund the police 
I think it, you talk about the things that we would get. So you talk about like you can put more money into the school system so that every kid can have access to the same high quality of education that kid, that white kids who go to private schools or kids who go to private schools or white kids who go to public schools in the suburbs that are well funded can have access to. So the so you can take money from there. And all the research shows, as we talk about in the show, that the that the more you put money into education, the less you have to put into incarceration. Uh, you also talk about the fact I think about like. Oakland, but I really think about the South side of Chicago where I grew up, that if you are a kid on the South side of Chicago, you're 13, you step out of your home, you can look for blocks in all directions and not see local businesses. You cannot see chain grocery stores. You cannot see hospitals and you can walk for a long time and not see that. If you're a kid on the North side of Chicago who steps out of his house, there's a lots of local businesses with help wanted signs. There's, there's lots of chain grocery stores. You have your pick of grocery stores. You have hospitals that are nearby in case something happens. The streets are flat and there's no potholes. So you can make the, the, the south side of Chicago, the south side of Chicago of every city look more like the north side of Chicago in every city is how you can do it. But you can actually fund things in a way that creates a, a society where where that kid on the south side of Chicago, crimes not even occurring. To, it's not even a thing. It's not a thing that's in his in his world in the same way. It's not a thing he falls into. Also, if you look at the criminal justice system and you go, the criminal justice system is racist. If that kid is involved in a crime, he's not considered a gang member because he's standing next to another black kid. Mm-hmm. You know, so many things that so many things are, are about how the criminal justice system looks at black, brown, indigenous folks in ways that even if you are involved in a nonviolent crime, you can be considered a gang member if you're just standing next to another person of your race. That doesn't happen to white kids in in the suburbs or white kids on the good side of town. I want to talk about the importance of language, though. Um, one of the you mentioned this, one of the activists you speak to um, calls what we're talking about police terrorism. Mm-hmm. rather than police violence or abuse. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really interesting distinction. Mm-hmm. And how do you think that's helpful to call it that? Because I think what it says is that there are people, certainly uh, black, indigenous, uh, uh, Latinx folks, who every time the police are in our area, we feel on alert and on guard. We don't feel safer. And that's not true for a lot of white people. If a policeman shows up, you feel like, ah, things just got safer. There are many people in this country who, when the police are in there in our area, we don't feel safer. We feel like more on alert because we have seen lots of evidence of how a black person can be doing, minding their own business, not looking at anybody, not threatening anybody and can end up dead at the hands of the police. And we talk about Elijah McClain in the episode, who is just a black kid in Aurora, Colorado, with a ski mask on, with an open face ski mask on in the middle of, an, of a pandemic, apparently dancing down the street. And somebody thought I should call 911. Even though they said, I don't think he's dangerous. Just the fact that they saw him and they're like, hmm, I should call 911. Stop. Stop. Have a right. Stop. Stop. I have a right to stop you because you're being suspicious. August 24, 2019 in Aurora, Colorado, 23-year-old Elijah McClain was walking home from buying tea when three police officers quickly put him in a chokehold. A chokehold that has since been made illegal. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Parade. 
Parade is all about self-expression. They make creative basics in sizes from extra small to 3XL in a wide variety of styles. Boy shorts, thongs, high-waist briefs, and now bralettes. These bralettes are a great way to ease yourself out of the bliss of braless quarantine to maybe normal life and the bras that will come with it. Launched just 18 months ago by Cami Telez, Parade wants to bring you everyday happiness at an everyday price. Everything starts at $8, and you can experiment with over 30 expressive colors and endless mix and match opportunities. Sustainability, inclusivity, ethical manufacturing, and social justice lie at the heart of the brand. Almost 100% of their fabrics are produced using certified, non-toxic, recycled content, and recently they launched their newest fabric, Universal, the world's first carbon-neutral, edgeless underwear. Parade's packaging is 100% biodegradable and breaks down within 300 days inside a composting environment. Since its launch, Parade has been donated to Planned Parenthood of Greater New York on an ongoing basis, as well as Feeding America and the Loveland Foundation. For a limited time, our listeners can get 25% off with a purchase of $40 or more with the code WFLT. Go to www.yourparade.com slash WFLT to get the creative basics you want and celebrate who you are today. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Magic Spoon. I have great news for you. If you've been slogging through protein shakes because you need protein but don't necessarily want to eat a heavy meal of meat, you can stop. You can have breakfast instead. You can have Magic Spoon cereal. Magic Spoon cereal has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. Each serving is only 140 calories. It is keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. And exciting news, Magic Spoon has released a new delicious flavor, Birthday Cake. Birthday Cake Magic Spoon will be available in a special five-pack for a limited time only, so get it while you can, or you can build your own box. Available flavors to build your own box include cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, and cinnamon. If you're listening from Canada, I have excellent news for you. Magic Spoon now ships there as well. You're going to want to get that custom bundle because one of the cool things about Magic Spoon is that you can create whole new flavors by mixing them. You can try cinnamon and cocoa together, or peanut butter and cocoa, or frosted and cinnamon. The cereal bowl is your playground. Go to magicspoon.com slash WFLT to grab the new limited edition birthday cake or build a custom bundle. And be sure to use our promo code WFLT at checkout to save $5 off your order. This offer is now good anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, but only when you use our code at checkout. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed by a 100% happiness guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash WFLT and use code WFLT to save $5 off. And we thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring this episode. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Renewal by Anderson. Here's something everyone can agree on. We all like to save money on home improvement projects. Well, April is free window month at Renewal by Anderson. For a limited time, you can get your windows now and pay nothing for an entire year. That's zero money down, zero payments, and zero interest for 12 months. And when you buy one window, patio door, or entry door, you can get another for 40% off. Renewal by Anderson is the full-service replacement division of Anderson Corporation. That means you won't have to lift a finger. They manage every aspect of the project for you. And when they're done, your new windows and doors will help you feel more comfortable in your home. 
Call today for a free window and door diagnosis at 866-308-0010 or visit the website greatestwindows.com. That's 866-308-0010. Hurry. This sale ends on April 30th. The offer is not available in all areas. Minimum purchase required. Discount and financing with approved credit only. Interest rate accrues from date of purchase but is waived if paid in full by the end of the promotional period. See website for restrictions and license information. Here you are. BPM's high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. When Tillamook ice cream beckons you to the freezer aisle, which irresistibly creamy flavor do you choose? While you're thinking, try not to fuck up the glass. Tillamook ice cream. Extraordinary dairy. Tell me, uh, what, what, how did you feel when you heard the verdict this week? I was, um, I was ecstatic. I was kind of like, you know, finally. But it's just, you know what I'm saying, when would it stop or when would it end? You know what I mean? It's like it's a beginning, most definitely a beginning. But, you know, when would it end, you know? So I know it ain't just going to stop here. I, I really feel that uh, police should be held accountable. So instead of the taxpayers paying out to family members when they sue them, they should come out their pocket. That's what, the, um, that's what should be stopped. Because taxpayers should have to be paid for their negligence. Because if, when you go to training, they should be trained very well, not trained when they're scared. If you're scared, you shouldn't do this job. And that was our producer, Allison Herrera, talking with people at George Floyd Square about what the verdict in the Chauvin trial meant to them. And now we return to W. Kamau Bell. Elijah McClain, black kid, I think he's 23, had the presence of mind to know what he was about to engage with the cop and says, one, I have the right to walk down the street. Also, I'm, I'm an introvert. I'm different. So you may be misunderstanding what I'm doing here, but I'm not I'm not I'm I'm not a threat. But with but within seconds, you see in the episode, they tackle him. Eventually, they get some sort of an EMT on the scene to inject him with more ketamine than should be in his system, which they shouldn't be injecting ketamine at all. And I've heard, read all these things about how paramedics on the scene of police things feel like the police are in charge of them, even though they're not. So police can tell them to give somebody ketamine. And they'll be like, OK, I feel like you're my boss because, again, they're afraid of the police. And he was dead within three days in the hospital. Mm. And all he was doing was dancing down the fucking street. And so there's so there that is police terror. If you see that video and then you hear about Tamir Rice and then you hear about Breonna Taylor sleeping at home and then you hear about like all these other people, John Crawford, who was standing in a Walmart holding a gun that he had just pulled off a shelf in the Walmart on the phone with his girlfriend shot without in the back. Police are not the saviors that we want, that a lot of white people believe they are. And that doesn't mean every black person feels that way, but it does mean it is a feeling that's very common within the black community. What we're talking about is a group of people who are intentionally making another group of people feel terrified for their lives in order to change their behavior, in order to police them, police them in sort of the more global sense, right? Yeah. And I was thinking about this and thinking about the Chauvin trial because you know, one of the prosecution's 
main tactics, and it seems to have been very successful, was to elicit the reactions of the crowd, right? Mm -hmm. Witnessing his death. And I think, I hope that for white people, it maybe dramatized that idea of community trauma, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. that maybe we don't think about that. There is like, it's not just that person who is, you know, with a knee on his neck has it's tragic and as central as that is, Mm -hmm. there are effects that just go out miles and miles and years and years. Yeah. And it, and it's, and it, and it's, and we can't forget that even though George Floyd's family got some measure of justice, uh, that the people who are on the scene, the people who testified against the police, the young black woman who filmed that actually happening, the black kid whose boss sent him out to go get George Floyd because he had allegedly passed a fake $20 bill. Those people are still carrying this mm-hmm. and they don't get to settle. They don't get, you know, to, to sue the city in any way. They don't get like even the financial <laughs> like restitution that society puts in place. And I'm sure if those people still live in Minneapolis and many of them, I'm sure do are, are aware that their names are known. And that when they walk around the community and cops see them, cops know who they are. And and we have not rooted out all the bad apples and we haven't actually and we haven't actually gotten the good apples to be good enough apples. So I I can't imagine what those people are living with. Continuing this theme that that is a form of terrorism. Adam Harris at The Atlantic had a piece this week that dovetails really interestingly with with what we're talking about. Are you familiar with the work of Nani Gaylord Hardin? No, no. So she's a clinical psychologist at Texas A&M, and she has a paper out recently that proposes that the behaviors of young black men that seem, quote unquote, suspicious to you, not you, never mind you, to me or to a policeman, being hypervigilant, being easily irritated, um, responding aggressively, that Mm -hmm. these are rational responses, it's survival. That, it's survival techniques. They aren't pathologies. They aren't symptoms. They are adaptive. Mm-hmm. And of course, you can't change them without changing the environment entirely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What I was really struck by was another researcher who described the situation by saying it's a lot like post-traumatic stress syndrome, except that oh, there's yeah. no post. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is ongoing. Yeah. 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 It's mid-traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> like it's the trauma is it, the the trauma just sort of ebbs and flows, but you're always in the middle of it. Yeah. No, I think that there's, I mean, you know, over the past year with the stress of the pandemic, the stress of three kids in the pandemic that I have. I'm talking about myself. Um, with the stress of having to go out and film the show, at some point I realized, you know, nope, we're all sort of sheltering in place. And when I have to go film the show, at some point I like looked at myself and sort of took stock. I was like, have I? am I okay? Like, you know, like, so I went to the doctor and he was like, we're going to need to up those high, that high blood pressure medication. Mm-hmm. And we're going to put you on a little bit more asthma medication. Cause it was just like the stress. And I believe it's all related to the stress of having lived through what we just all went through or we're all going through. Cause they were still in the middle of this pandemic. And then as a black person having to deal with it in a, and then the George Floyd thing. And the fact that COVID's looking for me that, there is a and, and, you know, I'm in therapy once a week because I'm li- I'm living at that level of privilege, but just living, trying to hold on as the world feels like it is always against you. And I mean, especially like there was no like to go through the pandemic and the and the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all that stuff and deal with that. Then having to go through like now go work, leave mm-hmm. your family and go do this. It just puts it put a lot. It has put a lot of extra stress on me. And as I look up, I go. 
I don't see where that alleviates. I don't have a like, I don't have a date where I can look and go by December, <laughs> like by this date, it'll all change, you know, by, oh, well, once we get to next June, it'll all be, you know, it's not. I, and so that's a, it's a lot. It's a lot. Well, there's a reason why people talk about racism and police brutality as a public health issue, mm-hmm. right? It mm-hmm. is a public health issue mm-hmm. and it has to be treated globally. You will be shocked. It's just, people who see this episode will understand when I refer to the Kerner Commission. Oh, yeah. It's almost like a sad thing. Like, yeah. because Adam Harris and his piece about this um, idea that the behaviors of young black men are adaptive, that a lot of the solutions that are being proposed are, are something you might recall from the Kerner Commission. <laughs> so you see this in the early part of the 20th century, and you see this certainly with the Kerner Report. So the Kerner Report is published in the wake of what President Lyndon Johnson saw certainly as riots and uprisings in cities across the country. And so the president says, we have to figure out what happened, why it happened, and how to prevent it. Mm-hmm. And what he probably didn't expect was the answer that came down from the Kerner Report. Yeah. In 1968, after seven months of study, the 11-member commission, nine of whom were white, released a 427-page report which was a political atom bomb. It not only exposed the police as the tip of America's racist spear, it pointed to systemic and cultural white racism as the driving force of that spear. So tell us about the Kerner Commission, because it's a, it's a little bit of a touchstone. Yeah, so the Kerner Commission was in um, was it the 60s. Uh, I don't have the dates down exactly. 68? but 68. Okay, I was going to say, yeah, 68. So around the time that Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated, the Kerner Commission comes forward and says that specifically policism is as bad as it is because of white racism. I think is how they frame it as white racism. And that that it, that basically they don't use these words, but they're basically talking about everything we're talking about now in black in the Black Lives Matter era. The Kerner Commission identified in 1968. And it was a committee of mostly white men, from what I understand. Mm-hmm. Like it was so it was like white men of privilege were like, I think racism is is destroying policing. <laughs> like, <laughs> It's still radical. And then so the current commission happens in 1968. And then it, what in the early 70s, Nixon's like, how about the war on drugs? Mm-hmm. That'll, and so the, this is why a lot of people, a lot of people are way past the idea of a reform, because the reform for policing was to lock up more black and brown folks. Mm-hmm. The reform for policing was to, for example, charge crack cocaine higher than they charge the same amount of powder cocaine. Because, you know, the idea being that crack cocaine is a black drug. So if you have the same amount of cocaine in crack as in powder cocaine, the crack cocaine, you get charged higher because that's affecting the quote. That's affecting the allegedly the black community more. So you're talking about a thing that the reform is like the thing that happens when suddenly uh, Urban Shield happens and police get access to military grade equipment like tanks and weapons and body armor. So that when you see Ferguson in 2013, 2014, it is tanks rolling down the streets of American things that look like tanks rolling down the streets of American cities. So the Kerner Commission identified it, but it's the response, which is the problem. And, and so that's why a yeah. lot of activists are like, there's no reform means nothing. That seems bad. How do how what's my part in this? How do I get more comfortable? We're never looking to support. We're rarely looking to support the community affected. We're looking to to further strengthen the communities unaffected. And again, the narrative being like policing is bad. We must we should throw more money at it to make it better. And it's actually that's where the fun comes in. It's policing always demands more money because of the nature of the nature of how strong the police unions are and how sort of 
embedded policing is in this country. You have, you know, like I think about that thing that happened in New York when there was a police involved shooting and a police officer died and the police union was mad at de Blasio, which being mad at de Blasio is no big breaking news, but the police union was mad at de Blasio. De Blasio went to the funeral and the police turned their back on the mayor. Mm -hmm. That's your boss guys. (laughs) But they don't have any fear. And this is true of police unions of who the mayor is, who the police chief is. It, their power is so strong and they have such good results when they stand up to power that they feel like they can turn their back on the mayor and that ultimately turn their back on the citizens they're in charge of policing. They're charged with policing, not in charge of policing. So I'm thinking about another group of people that I know have to have an outsized imagination and you didn't list them, but I know they're on your mind, which is people with disabilities mm-hmm. who are mm-hmm. also targeted by police at mm-hmm. a rate that is nauseating. Yes, you know, yes, yes. Because they're, people call the police on them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because we don't have a social service system. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Or we have one that is, that is in the same way we talk about civilian oversight, one that, is, that doesn't have the power to engage in the way it wants to engage. We call the police on anyone who's acting different. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Elijah McLean. Mm-hmm. And in the episode you talk about, you feel like have a, you have a real identification with him. Mm-hmm. Please talk about that a little bit more. Like, why do you see your story and his story and his story and your story? I mean, I think that one thing that I sort of very quickly had to, wanted to push back on a little bit after George Floyd was murdered was that that's the worst killing police murder that has ever happened. Like, there was a lot of like that video. We the, the people were saying the reason why the the world has been affected by that video is somehow because it's the most clear under video of police uh, abuse and police uh, terror, as we've talked about. And I was saying, no, well, no, that's just the one that is affecting you. And maybe it's affecting you because you've never really watched the other ones because you maybe heard about them or you read a headline or maybe you watched it once and turned away. But the fact was that during that era, that video was on the news a lot. So a lot of especially white folks took it in in a way they've never taken in one of those videos. And I'm here to say that, like, they are all bad and they they all the ones that affect you are often the ones that somehow relate you relate to. And so for me, like I think about Eric Garner, he was a six foot four uh, gentle giant with asthma. I have been described in all those ways. And then when I think about Elijah McClain, everything I read about him was how you know, and I say this in the best way possible. He was just kind of a weirdo. Like he was just kind of a, like a, like a dude who like, and we talk about in the episode, he, he literally danced to the beat of his own drum. Like, and there's a footage of him walking into his workplace, just dancing. He was a dude who was just like in his own head, living his, like t- taught himself to play violin. Wasn't really thinking about like thinking about, he was, he was in his head creating his own universes and then engaging with the world the way that he best saw. But it was also aware that the way he was acting in the world Everybody wasn't prepared for. So therefore you hear him with the cop going, I'm different. I'm an introvert. Like I'm aware of the fact that the way I act is not is not, quote unquote, the way you expect me to act. So I've I've got language around that. And as a black kid who was an only child who grew up with his mom, who spent a lot of time alone, who was interested in stuff he felt like nobody else was interested in, whether it's Bruce Lee or, you know, or or uh, black rock bands and before the Internet. So there was no community I could build. Um you know, so like no feeling like I was different and also sort of first being being like, man, I'm different. And then no, no, I'm different, which is different. Like and so like I and I saw a guy who was embracing his difference and sort of enjoying it in a way that probably he hadn't he had not done all his life. So I was like, I've been that kid. 
I've been that 23 year old who is trying to figure out how to come into your own while also understanding that the world did not did not appreciate you, the version of you you were putting forth. So certainly hearing that story and the more I read about it and the more I saw, read things that his friends wrote about him, it hit me really hard, and especially the fact that the other thing hit me is like it happened like a year before George Floyd. You know, it was not something that happened in the wake of George Floyd, but in those times you go, we can't keep up with this. We literally can't keep up with the pace of police violence, of police terrorism. And so those two things. How did I not hear of him before? Also, I have been that dude. I could have been that dude walking down the street at age 23, listening to Living Color and like bopping down the street and not been in my own head thinking about one day I would be a famous stand-up comedian. And that could have been me. I'm glad you brought up stand-up comedy. (laughs) <laughs> Isn't it clear to viewers and listeners who don't know my work that I'm a stand-up comedian? <laughs> that should be clear by now. <laughs> well, you are hilarious. Uh, but I, I spoke to Tig Notaro recently. I know. I was listening to that one. And uh, she talked about how stand-up has made her a good interviewer, that she's fearless and asking questions. Got her life philosophy is actually just in general pretty mm-hmm. interesting and empowering. But I wonder for you, with a background in stand-up comedy... I am sure that it makes you a better interviewer, possibly in the same way that that Tig talked about. <laughs> yes. Does it help you talk about this kind of trauma? I mean, I think it's like it's like a, which came first. Oh. I was a person who was using comedy to process the world before I was a stand-up comic. All stand-up comedy has done is sharpen that ability and hone that ability. But, you know, I think comedy is a biological imperative, <laughs> especially as a way to process trauma. And certainly it is no accident that in uh, certainly in America, the most oppressed group usually produces the funniest comedians. So there's no there's no now whether we actually give them the microphone is a different thing. But once you do give them the microphone, it's no it's no accident. To go back to the Chauvin trial just for a little bit. Um, we both mentioned this already in the interview, which is the the power of the cell phone video, the revolution that's been started um, mm-hmm. by people on the ground, not mainstream journalists, mm-hmm. right? They're, they are the people that have made this conversation possible. They mm-hmm. are the people that made Chauvin's conviction possible. Mm-hmm. You and I are journalists of a sort. <laughs> I'll take that. Uh, of a sort, uh, yes. Of a sort. But even speaking more broadly, like what can we learn? Like what, how do we gain a credibility? I think my credibility exists only because I'm not, I sort of am clearly a, I'm not a journalist the way in which mainstream media right. promotes journal, like sort of has journalists. Like, I think that's where I get my credibility from, which is why when everybody says you're a journalist, I should go, ah, do I have to be? I think I want my stuff to be journalistically tight. Like I want it to be fact checked and I want it to be like, I want the arguments to be backed by real Thing by real facts. So I'm not, so I love journalism in that way. But at the end of the day, I think it's important to have, I think it's, it's important that I'm able to keep my opinion. I think the thing I think about is like, you know, again, back to the, and I wish, I don't know if, uh, can somebody Google the name of the black woman who did, who did, who took the video? I think about Darnella Frazier. Has Darnella Frazier in any way been remunerated for that video? Has she been paid for that video? Has she been? Has somebody gone there and said, "You have a good knack for what's going on. What do you do for a living? How can we help you? How can we help you improve your circumstances? How can we help make sure? Is this something you want to do more with?" That's what journalism needs to do. We need to start. And I think the fact that my career is a whole tribute to the fact that, like, on some level, CNN is like, "Let's get new people in here." 
you know, let's get a new type of person in here. So uh, I think of somebody like Tony Bourdain, who is like doing journalism, but very much holding on to the fact that I am not a journalist. So, you know, John Stewart did that for years. I used to think he was sort of full of shit when he said, I'm not a journalist. But then after I got on this side, I was like, no, I get it now. It's not as fun to be a journalist. So I think we have to really, I think in order for me to embrace that label, we have to reconceive what journalism is because Darnell Frazier is a journalist. But we, but we just said, but I would imagine people just sort of took that video and didn't go, how do we pay her for that? Yeah. You know, what you made me think is that I'm not sure if there's a way for anyone who's currently working as a a real journalist. I don't know quite what the phrase would be, but you know, journalist, journalist Mm -hmm. to get the kind of credibility that they might need that what needs to change is something that we have been talking about changing in the media world for a little while now. It's who does the reporting. Mm -hmm. That's what needs to change. You don't mm-hmm. change the attitudes or the uh, institutions or the the way that re- reporting gets done. Mm-hmm. You just put different people. Yeah, you put people who haven't had access to that. I always think about the microphone. I feel like with the United Shades, I'm just taking the microphone CNN has given me and handing it to people who don't normally get the microphone or don't get it enough. So you are on CNN. Uh, I am. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> eight eight uh, times a year. <laughs> yeah, The network has some people on it. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's safe to say are part yeah. of the problem. Yeah. Uh, one of them revealed himself to be pretty much. I, I, we, 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 I would I love know, to. Was have it a, a reveal com- or was it a confirmation? Confirmation. Let's say that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Rick Santorum over the weekend said in a speech about America's Judeo-Christian values, always a red flag, right? Yeah. Yeah. Said when the colonists arrived, there was nothing here. I mean, yes. <sighs> We have Native Americans, but candidly, there isn't much Native American culture in American culture. And by candidly, he mean racistly. Racistly. We came yeah. here and created a blank slate. We birthed a nation. Birth of a nation. Nothing. I know. Isn't it f- like it's like he's like putting all the secret sauce mm-hmm, on it mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. make sure we know it's racist. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to you can talk about him if you want. I, I mean, I've, I talked okay. about him all day yesterday. Every time I had every time right. I should have been doing work, but I kept getting called, pulled back into it. Uh, and I've talked about him before. You know, my record of, of criticizing people on CNN who I don't agree with is pretty clear. I, I would do it more often, but it doesn't actually pay <laughs> to do that. So and it also doesn't accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. So I've criticized, you know, I'll criticize whoever I want to criticize, generally, you know. So I certainly have criticized Rick Santorum before because I think he's a bad faith actor. I think he sort of. Is has the Lego haircut and the demeanor of a of a reasonable Republican, but he's in no way a reasonable Republican. Whether or not he believes what he's saying or not, I don't actually give a shit. But he often dog whistles and worse uh, white white the uh, MAGA and Trump and the and the system of white supremacy. And he's certainly has a record of of being homophobic and like all these and and all these other things. And so, you know, shout out to uh, Dan Savage for (laughs) ruining his last name. Uh, But yeah, to me, that was just such a clear crossing of the line that you can in any way frame that is like, this is his opinion or both. And the thing that I'm really into now is like, you cannot find me a black person 
who has the opposite version of those extremist views, who gets a regular shot at the microphone. You you don't don't bring me Louis Farrakhan. Louis Farrakhan, you go to him. He does not. You don't put him on CNN. He he talks and then you put the clip on CNN, you know, on CNN. So and I'm not just landing on CNN. I'm landing on uh, that. There is not a black person or or a native person or Latinx that has those type of extremist views in the opposite direction who gets a regular shot at the at the at the public microphone. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, it's great that you can say these things with apparently without fear of reprimand from CNN. Here's the thing, too. Uh, it's, I think it's really important right now to say which side of the line are you on? which side of history are you do you want to be do you want to be counted on or which side when they come look at your receipts which maybe they won't because I maybe because certainly I'm not a very I'm not a pivotal person in history but I want to be clear which side of the line I'm on and what I will and won't take and it doesn't mean we can't disagree I'm not going after everybody I disagree with there are clear times you go I want to know want you to know I am anti that in every sense of the word yeah when um the protest started Actually, no, further back than that, actually, I think it was something that I was hearing people talk about when Trump was elected. You know, uh, if there's a lot of white people who like to think, oh, you know, if I'd been there during the civil rights era, you know, I would have been marching with Martin. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. like, now's your chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, <laughs> that, that, that meme that you saw going around, if you were like, if you always wondered what you would do during yeah. slavery, during the during World War II, uh, during, you know, women's suffrage, you're doing it right now. Yeah. <laughs> like you're doing, but and by women's suffrage, of course, I mean white women's suffrage. But yeah. Uh, yeah, you're doing it right now. So to me, I I've thought about that a lot over the past year. Like you're, the, you, especially in the position I'm in of having a platform, of having ability to get to the public microphone, of having a voice that people listen to sometimes or or pay attention to. It just becomes super time. And I and my and I, me and my wife talk about this. I'm like. It's just this weird thing. It, Twitter is nothing ultimately, but it just feels like I just want people to know that I'm a, that I know I work at CNN. I know he has a job at CNN. You have some vision of us in the CNN cafeteria like sitting at the same table. That does not exist. But I want you to know that I see this and I'm anti this. And some people are like, will you still take the check from CNN? Uh, what what am I going to do? Quit CNN so you can have another opportunity? <laughs> you can have more time to, to 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 spout those views? No, I'm not doing that. And I feel happy that I get this shot with this show and that I've been on for six years and it seems to be working to some extent and that there's been critical acclaim and I've got a few trophies. And so all I can do is make the show clearer and more focused every season, especially as the times we live in become more heightened and scary. Let's talk a little bit more about the show. Uh, the episode after... This one is mm-hmm. uh, Black to the Future. Yes. <laughs> uh, about people of color and technology. Mm-hmm. You want to talk a little bit about that? I am a huge science fiction nerd. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping that I <laughs> get to see some Afrofuturism in this episode. Is that? Yes. Yeah, no, you okay. will get to see some Afrofuturism. Not as not as much as we again, what we what we what we sort of thought going in. There is Afrofuturism. We talk about Afrofuturism and the idea that Afrofuturism, again, as we talked about earlier, yeah. is black people going like, I have to envision a future that doesn't exist because this reality is too painful to deal with. So I have so black people, you know, there's all sorts of artists and writers who engage with it, Octavia Butler being one of the leading voices. Um, but uh so I would say that like this episode is about that, but it's also about when you connect that to a lot of those kids who are fans of Afrofuturism 
want to grow up and actually participate in the future and the blocks that are in the way to stop them from participating and leading that future. So the idea that this episode was filmed in Atlanta, and we often think of Atlanta as like America's Wakanda to sort of keep this Black Panther thing going. That like where you see all these fabulous black people who own businesses and are and are political leaders and community leaders and just fabulous in every way and entertainment. And yet we sort of imagine, I think a lot of us, that that extends to every black person in the city of Atlanta. And it just doesn't. And there's a, and we, so we t- spent a lot of time in the episode talking about how the the fabulous black world you see when you see Atlanta talked about is this black Mecca that there are black kids in the public schools in Atlanta who have will who by the time they get to high school, it's already in some sense, they have not learned enough math to get them into uh, STEM careers, that they're already behind. And so they, even though Atlanta is also the, you know, Morehouse is there and uh, Clark Atlanta and all these other great uh, black universities are there, HBCUs are there, that by the time they get to high school, it's already, they're already too far behind to get into that, to be a part of that, imagining the black future and the future as a whole keep talking about the future you say in the policing the police episode that it's a new day you kind of end on an upbeat note i mean i think we're trying to end on a note of like we can let's get to a new day i think okay. that like the idea being that what we talked about i talked with mo who's the director and one of the executive producers of the show like wouldn't it have been great to go, to go wouldn't it have been great to go to oakland and just talk about how awesome oakland is and so what we're saying is like there's a there's more that black people want to talk about. There's there's more that I want to talk about. I wish that I was in the privileged position to travel around Italy and talk about pasta. Like I would be, so, I would love to do that. But the stakes are too high. The times are too hectic. the uh, The system is too oppressive right now. So I have to focus on the problems. When I really also would like to, when when really ultimately again, I was a black kid who wanted to do comedy because of Eddie Murphy on Saturday Night Live. But the times are not have not availed me of feeling like that's a thing I should be focusing on. And it doesn't mean the Saturday Night Live would have me. But I'm saying that, like, my career and maybe my talents brought me over here. And that is it for the show. We talked to W. Kamau Bell. His show, The United Shades of America, premieres on May 2nd on CNN. This show is a production of Crooked Media. It is produced by Allison Herrera with assistance from Izzy Margulies. This episode was engineered by Louis Lino. Whitney Pastrick does not control the weather. Thank you for listening. I don't say that enough. It's my privilege to get to talk to fascinating people and get paid for it. But if it weren't for you, that wouldn't mean much. Take care of yourselves. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule, so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 